Gareth Mitchell hosts the BBC's Digital Planet podcast. He lectures in broadcast and written journalism at Imperial College London. Before his interest in technology, Gareth used to participate in bell ringing. He is also a pilot and is a licensed amateur radio operator. Welcome, Gareth. Hello, nice to be here. Nice to meet you, Gary. Um, so, first of all, um, bell ringing, that's a very, it's a very unique um, hobby to pick up. How did you get into bell ringing, if I may ask you? Yeah, sure. I st I've never been asked about the bell ringing before, so I'm very glad <laughs> to tell the story. And it's... Um, and and this might be a specific thing to churches in the United Kingdom, but they have bell towers, which I know is not unique. But the bells in the bell towers are um, controlled, they're rung by lengths of rope that suspend right down into the bell ringing chamber below the uh, bell tower. And um, the, which I guess in itself isn't unique, but the, the bell swings like a pendulum. And so what the bell ringer is doing is, is pulling on the rope so the the bell which is in a sort of upright position with the donging thing facing upwards um when you pull on the rope of course then gravity does its thing and the bell swings down and then the rope comes flying up and then you pull back down again and then you just ease the bell back as it swings in the opposite direction but in a tower you might have four bells or six or eight the one i rang in had eight and so the whole idea is that the bell ringers um, ring out these patterns on the bells, these permutations. So you start with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and then it might be one, three, two, uh, four, five, six, seven, eight, and so on. And um, it's it's actually quite a mathematical thing. You ring in these uh, permutations. And I did it as a teenager, probably to keep me off the local park benches causing trouble. I was... Uh, <laughs> living a wholesome existence up in the bell tower, keeping myself out of trouble and uh, ringing the peals of bells to uh, <laughs> welcome people to church. <laughs> you're, you're a regular Quasimodo. Yes, you could say that. <laughs> Let's jump right into the, the topic of today's discussion. We'll start by discussing the internet shutdowns in Kashmir. Um, so basically for those who for our listeners who aren't familiar uh kashmir has current, is currently undergoing uh, massive internet shutdowns and we're here with our guests to ask how, what impact this might have on democracy um so Garrett, what are your thoughts about the the internet shutdowns in kashmir well, it's all very political, as you implied in the question there, really. And this is Delhi trying to exert its control and succeeding, really, in exerting its control in many ways over the uh, Muslims, or mainly Muslims, of Kashmir. And, of course, one a very effective way of exerting that control is by depriving people in the region of their internet, their fixed internet and indeed their mobile internet. And that has been going on, um, on and off, but mainly as in the internet being on and, and then off. Uh, so the shutdown has been on. In other words, the internet has been off pretty much for the last 18 months, maybe with a you know, a few times it comes back up again, or maybe it will reappear, but just be very, very slow. And it's, I mean, I suppose all of us 
around the world can identify with the inconvenience of an internet shutdown. I mean, my broadband went down here in London the other day for half an hour or so, and it disrupted a few meetings, and it was really annoying. But scale that up to just this ongoing, uh, you know, depriving people in Kashmir of their (coughs) internet is it's just almost difficult to get your head around how much of an effect that has and it's it's not just simply well people can't get onto the social media anymore they can't watch cat videos on youtube you know people are being paid through the internet uh, people organize their their social lives they get access to healthcare all those things that you'd expect so an internet shutdown really is tantamount to shutting off the water supply for instance or mm-hmm. blockading food supplies it is as, it is as serious as that and as great an insult to human rights and human needs as depriving people of food or water I, I was going to follow up and ask do you think whether the, the internet is a fundamental human right at this point I think that is the case because uh, as a as an infrastructure it gives access to human rights you know the rights to um to healthcare access to healthcare for instance the rights to have access to employment so you know being able to access um money uh, payments shopping the essentials of food um, and indeed the social side, especially at a time like this where we need to be able to stay in touch with our loved ones and our families, then yes, um, the depriving people of connectivity by its nature deprives them of all kinds of things in their lives that they have a human right to access. It's not exactly then that the internet is a human right, but the internet gives people access to certain other fundamental human rights. At the very least, it does, yeah. And I, I think that, you know, de facto, the internet or access to the internet is or, or should be a human right or, or certainly very close to exactly as it gives access to those things that we do have a right to that are human essentials. I guess I would like to play the devil's advocate in the sense that I, I recognize that it is uh, in many ways a negative beyond what I could imagine living in Western Europe. Uh, to not have access to the internet. But I think there's also a lot of research out there indicating all the ways in which the internet is unhealthy. And so it's interesting what you're saying about it being a human right, because as much as it connects us, it also divides us. There is that. And I suppose you could say that other things like certain kinds of foods are unhealthy in terms of you know their effect on the body or they might be fattening or they might be just downright bad for you and indeed problematic for the environment but of course that isn't an argument for just shutting off food supplies <laughs> so, uh, which may be a slightly simplistic answer and look I do see what you mean of course the internet is divisive um, it's problematic in so many ways so many ways that we reflect on Digital Planet every week in terms of misinformation, disinformation, in terms of coercive state control over people's beliefs and their ability to express themselves. Of course it is. But I don't think one tackles the the, the difficult sides, the problematic sides of the internet by uh, depriving people of it in a region like Kashmir. Like you mentioned with the, with the food example, um, it's important that just because there are some aspects of the internet that are unhealthy doesn't justify removing all of people's access to the entire internet. But 
In your first, like in our first question, this seems political. The fact that, you know, the, the entire internet has been shut down in the region of Kashmir, it feels that this is, some, it's not designed to protect people from misinformation. This is, in my, in my opinion, it has to be something political. And I find it worrying that the internet is being used as a tool to, to manipulate people, if you will. I'm concerned that uh, governments would, you know, attempt attempt to control the the population by denying them access to the internet. I guess this leads into another question. Uh, what is the? I mean, we're talking a lot about the internet, but what actually is the internet? I mean, it's sure it's just a physical network of of cables across the ocean bed, but I don't know. That feels like a simplistic answer. What do you think? Yeah, it, well, I suppose actually it is a, a correct definition of the internet. It is a network. It's a network of networks. So it is a physical infrastructure. Of course, there are all kinds of layers of abstraction that arise from that. But really, it is. It's fiber optics under your paving stones in your street. It is a microwave aerial communications, wireless communications across landscapes. It's uh, increasingly also submarine cables um, linking continents. And it is, it's all those things. It is a, a, a cluster of networks housed in buildings and server farms uh, and, um, and, and fiber optics and of course the mobile internet as well and you know we're talking about 5g so you know if you look at a mobile phone tower up on the top of a building or on a, a hillside that's the internet as well or at least a part of the internet so it is that but of course alongside that physical infrastructure of the internet of course it is a place it is uh, an entity it is a culture it is um it, it's i suppose a, a an element of humanity and human endeavor it's all those things but but rather boringly and prosaically at the end of the day it is a great big hulk of fiber optic and radio links connecting us all i mean i i can't deny that that's that it is just a, a bundle of wires, hard to put to make it even more simplistic. But I don't know, a part of me feels that, and maybe this might sound a bit crazy, but I think it's a reflection, I think the internet is a reflection of human consciousness. I mean, it's a collection of all this, this information that we deem valuable, accessible to everyone at the push of a button. And I think it's, uh, I would say it's an extension of human consciousness. Yeah, I think it is. It's it's kind of like a brain in a way. And one way that I understand just how profound the internet is, is of course the design elements, the design philosophy at its heart, which is that it reconfigures itself. So, you know, for instance, if a ship, as these things often do, slices through one of the submarine cables, crucially connecting continents, then the packets of information that are trying to get from one place to the other will just reroute themselves around the internet. And so the whole point, you know, around the infrastructure is it, it was designed by the US military, by DARPAnet in the 60s and 70s, was that it could survive an attack, it would just automatically reconfigure itself. And as a, an interesting, maybe troubling thought experiment, of course, if, imagine if there was, for some reason, 
reason we humanity decided it didn't want the internet anymore. That all the problems that we've been discussing ended up outweighing the many benefits of the internet. And for some reason, humanity in the future said this is now more harmful than good. We should close it down. And there was some kind of UN resolution to close down the internet. The thing is, we couldn't do it. We couldn't switch it off, even if we chose to. It is impossible well, to switch this thing off. <laughs> so it is. It has become a self-organizing entity in itself. There's something quite organic about that. There's something living about the internet, and it will outlive humanity. So you say it's an extension of humanity, and I agree with you. And it will outlive the humanity that created it. Well, uh, that is both amazing and terrifying at the same time. <laughs> Sci-fi, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You had mentioned culture in in respect to what the internet is. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I suppose in the sense that it has the, the internet, of course, reflects culture. It is a medium for transmitting culture, and that, that's a very basic argument. In that, you know, you could say that net, you know, Netflix happens because of the internet, and that's a transmission of culture. But of course, the internet has brought about with it cultures of its own, uh, in, in, in terms of visual culture, for instance. And this is more World Wide Web than internet, if we're going to be pedantic. But when you think of the HTTPS colon slash slash, you know that that's a kind of cultural artifact in itself. Um, you know, albeit a, a visual one or a, a piece of text. And um, and I suppose what the internet does in a sense is it, it kind of makes us into cyborgs in that certainly sitting on the internet, of course, is all the information that the World Wide Web helps um, us to locate through the internet. And of course, that is this enormous and ongoing and growing in real time extension of the human mind and human minds. And that's cultural in a sense as well. You know, so there are cultures and subcultures, whether they're artistic or musical or intellectual, that have only come about and can only exist because we have this thing called the internet, this big distributed machine called the internet creates a culture of its own, or at least of our own, as the humanity that created that internet. Would you go so far as to say that some subcultures or some movements could not have come about if it wasn't for the internet? I think that that is what I would say, you know, that the internet enables, for instance, collaborative work in a way that you could argue that could take place without the internet, that those people collaborating online could be brought together into a physical space. But even if that were the case, the culture that emerges, the artistic or musical or intellectual or literary or dramatic um, outcomes would be different were they conducted in a purely physical space. And, and of course, the answer so far that I've just given hasn't even included the next level, which is when we go into artificial intelligence mm -hmm. and the way that you have this synergy between the physical infrastructure and the algorithms that move culture on as, as well. You know, so things like, um, you know, I was listening to like some virtual Frank Sinatra the other day, like an AI that had been programmed with everything that, or many, <laughs> almost everything that Frank Sinatra ever sang or appeared in, in order to create like a, a Frank Sinatra sounds that sound hauntingly as if this is Frank Sinatra's new work in the 21st century. Things like that. Something original, we're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it is. Oh. It's 
Yeah, it's like an AI repository, if you like, you know, into which people can, you know, and you have things like IBM's Watson that does this. I don't know if they, it's specifically done Frank Sinatra. But for instance, there are algorithms where you feed them a whole load of a certain kind of artist and they will create not just lyrics that might reflect what that artist might have written. You know, and we've, we've seen this with Shakespeare, for instance, that you have kind of these virtual Shakespeare sonnets that have been created by AIs. But actual music, you know, you listen to a track and you think, I'm sure I never heard Frank Sinatra sing that. And that's because an AI created it. It still gives itself away a little bit. It doesn't quite authentically sound like Frank Sinatra, but it's but not it's, far off. It's and still it incredibly yeah. impressive, huh? Yeah, it's incredibly impressive. Absolutely. Impressive and scary, yeah. Um, uh, it's, it's existing between these dualities. <laughs> I, you know, it sounds really great, and it also sounds very, very scary. <laughs> I, I think the fact that it's partly the fact that it's terrifying makes it so exciting as well. Exactly. Um, I mean, you when, when you mentioned cyborgs earlier, I got, I, I, was, I got a bit excited because on the one hand, I was thinking... All right, so humanity on its own, like one human by themselves can achieve so much, but one human with, you know, with other humans collaborating can achieve a little bit more. But now having humans all in collaboration over the internet, it's like, it's the next level. I'm not going to as far as say it's the next level of evolution, because that sounds a bit, you know, too far out. But I mean, we can't deny that it feels that it is, it has become a part of us. Like you said, it's like in the same way we don't, think twice about someone wearing a pair of glasses or or having a, a I don't know a smartwatch. It feels that now humanity is, for better or for worse, um married to the internet. Yeah, exactly. You know, we are embodied within it and it is embodied within us, you know, especially when you think about implantable devices. So, you know, rather profoundly, if you think about this transition that I've certainly seen in my lifetime, uh, where nothing was connected before, and then, of course, our desktop PCs became connected, then through Wi-Fi, our um, laptops and mobile devices uh, became connected, and now our bodies and indeed our brains are becoming connected through implantable um, technologies you know, even the fact that you wear a fitness tracker, for instance, is a, is a form of the fusion of the body with um, with the machine. Um, so you have all that going on, and and I think, I suppose, coming back to this emerging crowdsourced, um, pooled human culture that the internet enables. I suppose you've got the intentional and the and almost the unintentional. And what I mean by that, of course, you have the or the conscious side of that. So you know. The three of us could sit down and say, let's just collaboratively, collaboratively author a radio script. And we're very mm -hmm. conscious of the fact that the internet is the thing that's allowing us to, to share a, a document and, and type out a script together. But then just think about the the unintended or the unconscious aspect of that. And that everything, you know, this this podcast will end up in the cloud somewhere, along with millions and billions of other conversations and podcasts and so on. So the, you know, the essence of our thoughts and our words and our voices and our images and photos and now body data as well, they're all being fed into the machine and synthesized into the algorithms, in, or can be at least, into all other kinds of things. You know, there's the, probably metadata from this podcast is being fed into some algorithm somewhere that will end up spewing out a whole load of analytics about the number of times the word cat is mentioned in, in humanity or something like that. And of course, that Not can too be... Many times. <laughs> too, exactly. You can never have too many cats. Uh, so, 
so when you think of the um you know the images and the sounds and, and maybe the art or the, the videos or installations that can be created and are being created from the this all this pooled data of conversations and um and resemblances and as I've mentioned, body data and so on. That's just a huge fusion of everything that is us that can be manipulated, repurposed, uh, you know, just synthesized into who knows what. I think we've learned a lot more about human psychology by observing the way we behave. Um, because let, let's be frank, like over the internet, it's much easier to collect data about the way people interact, the way they behave, the way they talk, the way they type rather. And I think we've learned a lot more about ourselves than thanks to the internet. But to to move on, um, earlier um, you mentioned about um, implants. Would you, um, let's say there's the opportunity to, to install like a, a chip into your, I don't know, into part of your body, into your brain, for instance, and instead of having to access the internet through your cell phone, uh, you'd be able to do it without a cell phone. Is, would would it be something that you or Nika would would do? Is it something you think most people would get behind? It? It, this is this is going to be an odd answer, actually. The, the, my as I because I am sitting here hesitating. I kind of want to say yes, but my something in me is is hesitating. And I, I think it's partly I, I just hate injections. <laughs> I don't have any <laughs> tattoos. <laughs> so, I think it's just the the idea that somebody's going to put a needle or something somewhere near me to put the implant in that it might hurt me a little bit, and I, so it's odd that my my initial reaction is more about just not fancying the, the thought of that than maybe the bigger and, and wider and more important and profound and fundamental question about consensually um, putting something into my body that effectively makes me into part of the network, <laughs> into the internet of bodies. Um, so. As long as it doesn't hurt, I'm I'm not too <laughs> I'm not too I suppose that I just have to I'm thinking on my feet here a little bit. I I think I would just have to be sure that the benefits I received from that would outweigh the downsides. And actually as I age, I suspect that equation will go more in the favor of the machines. So at the moment, luckily you can see I have to wear glasses, but that's about the only body enhancements I need to get through my life. But of course, all of us face the prospect of losing mobility or mm -hmm. sight or hearing or indeed cognitive function and memory and what have you. And I suspect that if an implanted device allowed me to function at a higher level as I age uh, than would be the case without that implant, then I would say, yeah, just stick it in. Even if it hurts, let's just put this <laughs> thing in because it will make my life better. I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that your priorities are in order. I mean, the first concern should always be whether something hurts or not. It really should be. It should. I'm a real I mean, baby. <laughs> no, no, I mean, if some, let's be frank, if something hurts, it's probably not good for you. Uh, exactly. But, yeah, you're speaking to a lover of tattoos. <laughs> really, you're brave, you see. Yeah, you, you know, and I can see there's a piercing there as well. The listeners might might not be able yeah. to see it. So you, your pain threshold is is a lot higher than mine. <laughs> well, so. she does deal with me on a regular basis, so her pain threshold <laughs> is very high. <laughs> but uh, Nika, what what about you? Would you invest in a you know cyber cyborg enhancement? The scientist in me is saying that we are so far away from understanding the implications of this kind of technology. And I think we're still in the very, very early stages of understanding the effects of social media. 
and our brains have not adapted to this technological age and we're so far far away from from reaching a point where our brains can actually function well in the society that we've created with this technology so i would say jumping into something like this seems a bit too risky i mean i i mean that's a fair fair enough as an answer i i think i did I think I'd go for it, honestly. I mean, I, I can't wait to be able to process more information faster and, you know, just be connected, just be a better version of myself through technology. But we're already suffering from information overload on a daily basis. Ah, but you at least now you'd be able to process it. Ah. Yeah. So the implant would, would filter it out into everything we need to live our lives. But then, exactly. But then who controls the filter? And yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> I mean, but that does lead us very neatly into the next question. Who actually owns the internet? Is it the person who owns the, the phone towers? Is it according to, to the region where it is? Who, who owns it? That's, that's I, I have no idea, really. I need to Google this. <laughs> through the internet, yeah. I'd, I'd, and I, and I, I must admit, I... I'd, I doubt whether anybody fully knows. I mean, that's uh, it's, it's an interesting, and I'm not a, an expert in the, I suppose, the legality of it. But I mean, it's it would be pretty obvious that if, for instance, you have, well, you know, fiber optic cables, for instance, the undersea cables tend to be consortia between governments and technology. So they, you, you, and technology companies. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, these they're expensive, critical infrastructure. And so um, governments raise money, you know, through the private sector to put those uh, cables in. And of course, there are legal agreements and lease, leases and all those kinds of things that would state very clearly what the ownership structure is, but they are owned and they are owned, you know, privately and to an extent publicly. And the same could be said for the rest of the infrastructure. So I'd imagine probably if you, if, if one needed to or wanted to and had enough resources, what you could almost do an audit of the internet and break it down to the last bit of fiber optic cable or the last mobile phone tower or the last circuit board and ascribe that ownership to some kind of entity somehow. Even if one did that, exactly what it would tell us, I suppose, isn't necessarily the interesting part. I and maybe what your question is searching for is more about almost what is the moral ownership of the internet? And if we extend the definition of the internet beyond the infrastructure and into the content that is on it, then you get into some very deep questions about the ownership of data. You know, for instance, coming back to body data, of which, of course, there are now exabytes of that stuff on the internet, pools from fitness trackers and heart monitors and goodness knows what around the world. That, you know, that data, if we come down to the data question, that is really interesting and problematic because I might argue that the data coming from my fitness tracker is mine because it's my body data, you know, my heart. What could be more, what could you own more than your own heartbeat, for instance? And yet the technology company that is doing the analytics on that data and returning value to me to give me some warning that I've got an impending heart condition would say, well, the, the processing we've done on that data, well, we own that. That's our proprietary technology that's given you those all important and potentially life-saving insights into your data. Um, or maybe the cloud provider hosting that data might say they own it. So then that gets very tricky. So anyway, it's a, I know it's a long and probably slightly waffly answer. So the physical infrastructure of the internet, we can probably, in, 
in a fairly straightforward way, if we had the, the scale to do it, pin that down to ownership, you know, by certain entities, the data sitting on the internet, that's a whole other thing. I mean, um, I, I, I like the idea, well, I like, I, I think it's fantastic, the idea that someone could one day theoretically uh, perform an audit of the internet. Uh, that's just fantastic, in my opinion. But um, the question, my, my main concern is, okay, right now it's a big question mark, is then who owns the data on the internet? But then how can an entity like, say, how can, say, a government then perform an internet shutdown if no one actually owns it? Because if it's not, I mean, if I, the only legitimate way, in, in my opinion, I'm not sure if, if this is the case or not, but if a government wants to perform a shutdown, then either they need to own that that uh, that entity or they they might say, listen, this is bad for, for the general population. I generally don't think that any government has a right to deny people the internet, especially because nobody owns it. Um, but I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I, I think, so. you know, and in some cases, of course, the government can physically own the internet in countries where, and I think Iran might be an example, where the state runs the internet service providers. The, the state can oh. turn around and say, well, actually, that, that building with that all that equipment in, that is, you know, we put that fibre in, so it is ours to shut down if we want I to. See. So th that might be the case. But of course, if that same state said, well, we're just going to block all the roads and uh, limit people's um, mobility and their ability to travel uh, because the roads are blocked, then that would play very badly politically. So uh, and the, India is a very interesting case because I learned when I was looking into all these different shutdowns in places like Kashmir that there is some rather anachronistic legislation that goes back to the time of the Raj, the British rule of India, where postmasters, and I'm afraid they, they tend to be referred to as postmasters, I know it's a gendered term, um, in India have, have, control, have a lot of control over not just the postal system in their regions, but also all the um, telecoms infrastructure that goes with it okay. so so i think i'm right in saying in india that if if delhi chooses to it can just tell its postmasters to um switch off the internet and the, the the metaphorical and quite possibly the physical switch that allows them to do that is at the level of the people who run the basically the telecoms infrastructure in individual states and so the the legal um background to that which is still in force in India, as unfortunately we're seeing in places like Kashmir, goes back to British rule of India. So anyway, that's a fascinating question. But but I think, and maybe the even more interesting question that I suppose you're searching for is basically what you're asking is, uh, well, I think I'm right in, in saying, I'm not trying to suggest what, you know. What no, no, don't worry, go on. But, but, it, but my interpretation of your question is, okay, well, what rights does a state have? You know, who cares whether they own it or not? The, the, it's just... How is how is there a moral case for a, any um, government to deprive its people of a basic human need? And I think we can count connectivity as a human need. What, how is it the state's place to do that? Um, and of course, those of us who live in uh, liberal Western democracies would say, well, the state shouldn't do that. And I think any government in Italy or the UK that tried to so overtly control connectivity probably would find themselves... Um, uh, unelected after uh -huh. some time um but in the case where you have an increasingly authoritarian government with the bjp in india and of course the other ultra authoritarian uh, regimes in places like iran and north korea they really 
seem to be able to do what they want. And furthermore, they seem to be, and, and obviously evidently are, willing as governments to take the economic hit that comes from shutdowns. And these things in total cost the economy, I heard one figure, $8 billion a year of lost economic activity, of, of economic losses, and that's probably gone up by now. Um, so yeah, so that, so it, for people who think, well, it's, surely it can't be that big a deal if you shut down the internet, but the sum total of all the internet shutdowns in the world, according to some figures from a, a VPN provider, uh, for 2019 were $8 billion. So even if it's only $4 billion, or maybe it's twice as bad as that, but we are talking about billions of dollars yeah, of economic number. losses yeah, from closing down the internet. And you'd wonder why any state would willingly um, forfeit economic wealth, basically. And yet there are plenty of states who are quite happy to take the economic hit in return for having control over their people. But also that economic revenue, I mean, I imagine that's coming largely from North America and the West, populations that are rich enough to consume at a significant scale. Well, I, I, I mean, it's, it, that would be the case, but of course, we're not seeing the, the the shutdowns in places like where you have the liberal democracy. So, you know, you don't have internet shutdowns, as far as I'm aware, in places like the United States or Sweden or Italy or you know, Malta or the UK or wherever it might be. Um, you know, so so given that many of these internet shutdowns tend to be in lower or middle income countries, that eight billion dollar figure is all the more shocking because that's eight billion dollars right. of of economic losses um, born largely by low, and the people of lower to middle income countries. So I would, I'm very curious now, because you've got me thinking about the negative impacts of these shutdowns. One, I haven't really seen in the news anything about Kashmir, and I understand that we're sort of preoccupied with COVID, but I also can recall a very positive aspect of the internet in which uh, there was, I believe, a woman in Sudan, um, I'm not sure which part, maybe South Sudan, um, who was going to be hung for uh, being Christian. And forgive me if I'm getting my information wrong, but the point I want to make is that it was the intervention of sort of this, the international crowd over the internet that had stopped this from happening because this event was getting widespread attention. And now I'm thinking, well, um, if we were to react to this, this, this shutdown in Kashmir, would there then be pressure on the government? And why hasn't that been happening, especially if we're framing internet as a human right? Uh, and that's exactly why governments, uh, well, many governments, are shutting the internet down because we don't hear from them. Because by definition, they block information. That's for many of these governments the whole point of having the shutdown to suppress information coming out of those parts of the world. Um, you know, we've seen it in the conflict uh, between um, Armenia and Azerbaijan. Internet shutdowns in that region. So you know, by by their nature, they are about blocking information, and that's why, for instance, the the cash shutdown affecting millions of people depriving millions of people of their livelihoods you know should be big international news stories even in a time of covid it should at least get be getting somewhere onto the news agenda but this is a sign that internet shutdowns actually do what they're meant to do which is to block information so that people are not sufficiently discussing um, state control and, and state coercion of often vulnerable uh, people and um and so I really do, I, I, um, I salute the various internet observatories that are keeping this whole 
subject on the agenda by gathering data on internet shutdowns because that's another you know fascinating thing just from a technical point of view is how does an observatory an internet observer observatory even know that a region has shut down if there's no information coming out of that region you know how, how mm -hmm. would you know um but you have organizations like netblocks for instance which brilliantly runs this real-time observation of shutdowns around the world and puts out regular um news bulletins as it were as you go from you know ethiopia eritrea um iran um kashmir and they report on these shutdowns in real time and incidentally uh, netblocks has um an economic activity tracker you know they have a tool that allows you to take a given country and work out how much economic damage has been done by um, an internet shutdown. So before this interview, I looked it up for India. And so I think the figure was around $1.2 billion of economic losses in India because of shutdowns there, largely the Kashmir one. So a great question, though. Why don't we hear about these shutdowns? Well, that's really the point of the shutdown, so that we don't know about them and um, they don't I mean, get they the coverage that they should get. I mean, they are terrifyingly effective, the internet shutdowns, mm -hmm. I would say, ruthlessly effectively. However, what concerns me is there's a, a wave, I feel, of, of skepticism. Uh, so, for instance, you would have people who would say, so, for instance, you mentioned uh, net, NetEnt? Uh, uh, NetBlocks. NetBlocks, yeah. sorry. Um, NetBlocks. Like, you would have people who could argue, they'd say, ah, oh, but what is NetBlocks' agenda then? Like, how can you be sure that the data they are providing is genuine? How can you be sure the data that X company or Y company is providing? It just feels that no, either, it feels that people view either whatever they disagree with as misinformation or ah, it's like they only trust information that is coherent with their worldviews. Yeah. And I find this to be quite worrying. And I'm not sure if we, humanity as a species, can actually can actually get out of it. Uh, but do, do you think that there is this, this kind of skepticism or is it, you think maybe I'm just being paranoid? <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it it's raises a huge issue. Uh, one, I suppose, answer or solution to that issue is about data and open data, where the, and for instance, NetBlocks, if you go to its internet shutdown economic impact calculator, they do list their sources and they, if they, if you like, they show their working. I suppose to preempt skepticism, people like me, you know, journalists or, or indeed just, you know, conspiracy theorists saying this is rubbish, how come? And so they, they're able to say, well, these are the assumptions that we've made. You may disagree with our assumptions, but this is how we, we um, obtained this figure. But of course there will be skepticism. And, and I suppose it's all part of healthy um, democratic um, discourse that there may be people who would say, well, it's awful that people are repressed, but the Indian government would say they have a, a problem with separatism, with terrorism, in some elements of Kashmir, so to uh, protect the, the overall population, you know, we're, we're protecting our citizens by uh, blocking the internet so that uh, the, the bad actors cannot plan bad things against the good people, they would say. And of course, in a, in a healthy democracy, that's a discussion to be had, and it should be had in the open. But of course, I suppose what you're referring to is this deeper and darker problem of the conspiracy theorists, and we see them both around internet shutdowns, but I suppose even more worryingly around the anti-vax movement and with COVID and uh, with um, mis and disinformation around election campaigns. I suppose it's a whole other thing. And 
having spoken so much about the internet as a human need, as this amazing thing that humanity has created, and therefore, you know, no element of humanity should deny another um, element of humanity, its brothers and sisters of the internet. The darker side of it, the problematic side, is around the mis and disinformation that on one level just means that you might have a few rather badly informed people who can frankly just be a bit annoying when they pop up on the social media, but at a much more, um, we all know who they are, um, at a profound and more troubling level, of course, we're seeing that um, flows of mis and disinformation are disrupting the very machinery of democracy and um, affecting the outcome of elections and responses to climate change and um, the COVID. And that, of course, is extremely serious and worrying. But I wouldn't just say it's a problem with uh, with election campaigns. I feel it affects the whole political theater in the sense that you have we have each each state. Well, not just uh, each state would be spinning its own narrative. So, for instance, in the U.S., I mean, we have. I'm sure our viewers have heard of of the Great Firewall or the Splinternet, rather, where you have an entire section of the internet is like shut off for people in, in mainland China, and then you have sections of that are shut off for people in the US. So it's like we have two separate internets rather than one cohesive, one whole unit. And I mean, it, it's very easy to read between the lines, I would say, where, for instance, you have the US pushing for US-based um, applications and websites. For instance, Trump, when he wanted uh, TikTok to be sold from its Chinese owners, I think it's worrying that, um, you know, well, not necessarily. I mean, what, how do you feel about the Splinternet? Because uh, maybe I'm just being a bit... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose it's just that for most of the internet's history that we've lived through, we've been able to say it's this, this one thing, it's this one piece of critical infrastructure that is delightfully... I suppose, free or liberated from geopolitics. But now, of course, the internet is highly geopoliticized, as indeed we've seen with that spat with um, Donald Trump and TikTok and China. And, you know, Donald Trump, I suppose, evoking his rights as a, a world leader to determine who's going to own a service that, or the majority own a service that his citizens use. You know, if that's the way democracy wants to take you, then that might be fair enough. But it is, it it is becoming... The idea that the internet can be politicized and that people's access to the networks and certain kind of data are at the whim of some very, shall we say, troublesome um, political vested interests, I think is is an issue. And it's something we need to uh, think about. And, and you brought up that term splinternet. And I think it's a really helpful term because it helps us understand that this global network of networks that we've celebrated for for so many years, for decades, as being this, this unbreakable infrastructure that is just there making sure that the packets of data from your microphone end up somehow reassembled in my laptop into my headphones here and it, it all works that that increasingly is fragmented and at the whim of state actors like the big superpowers or indeed the, the technology companies with their own vested and commercial mm. and quite possibly political interests. And that is a huge worry. And I suppose there's no overarching authority to protect it. Maybe the UN through the International Telecommunication Union is about the closest I can think of. But I was um, just going to say that, I mean, do we need the UN to declare this as a human right unless it already has been? And I just haven't seen that. Yeah, I mean, and, and certainly, um, I suppose, services and um, um, I 
uh, and institutions that serve human rights are, are certainly protected. The internet as a whole, I don't know. I suppose by its nature, it's 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 a kind of un unregulatable thing, even at UN level. Um, you know, I think it's it's almost like tackling climate change in a way that it it involves. A consensus, an international consensus, you know, 193 countries or whatever, all agreeing to um, curb their carbon emissions in some ways, you know, and um, to, to meet a, an agreed target on warming. And it's, it's almost like you need that international consensus level agreement um, to, to protect the internet or certainly the, um, you know, the structures and the, um, the cultures and the organizations that it enables. I mean, um, I have, well, so we start winding down. Um, I, my next question would be, well, whether democracy and the internet should be so integrated. Personally, personally, I, I have a very unpopular opinion in the sense that I don't think democracy is all it's cracked up to me, personally. And I'm sure people will, will disagree with me and they have every right to. Oh, you're jaded. Yes. You're too young to be jaded. <laughs> uh, pardon? You're too young to be jaded. I mean, well, let's <laughs> maybe let's say I'm not. Let's say I'm not too young to be jaded. Maybe maybe the whole <laughs> internet has made me jaded seeing all this information. But uh, do you think that democracy and the internet should be integrated? Personally, I I think it comes down more to the individual where we're we. We're savvy enough to use the internet, but at the same time, I don't think that it's it's something that should be integrated into democracy. I think it's something that um, it's just you that we just use it as a tool when necessary. I, but again, this, these are my two cents. What, what do you guys think? And we'll end on on that note for us. I, I suppose it's it's for me. It's not so much about whether it's about democracy and the internet. I I suppose it is what relates to democracy is regulation, and of course, that's something that democracies bring about. You know, we vote for our legislators, who then pass all kinds of environmental regulations, or in this case, regulations, and and increasingly, especially across Europe, as we know through things like GDPR, where there has been a like a certainly a political consensus that regulation is needed. And um, and you know people can take their own view as to how healthy data protection legislation agreed at a European level is. Um, but then I suppose that what's really interesting about your question is about democracy. You know whether we perhaps we some of us feel that we've lost faith in democracy, and therefore that would be an argument for completely decoupling the states or um, legislators from the workings of the internet. But what that comes down to is a whole question about how the will of the people is expressed. And I think one thing we're seeing through the networks, actually, is that democracies themselves are being challenged by the Internet, which, apart from anything, is this enormous consent mechanism, in a sense. You know, it is a huge reflection of the will of the people. So we may well find that questions about democracy in its traditional sense will become in a way less important as people exert their will and after all the democracy is about expressing and exerting the will of the people maybe that will be enabled more through the internet than the traditional democratic structures about which we may be either very skeptical or, or non-skeptical so that might be the real question about the internet how will our will be reflected 
as the information society continues to spread? I mean, I, I would agree that the internet is a is a tool for people to express their own their own views, and I think it's great that and we should be expressing. Everyone has a right to express their own views, but the the question then comes comes to whether anyone is actually listening. I mean, um, what's what's the point of having everyone state their opinion and then the decisions that are taken are done so irrespective of what people actually feel. But then I suppose one hopes or one assumes that we find as a society a means of expressing the will of the people and uh, in many places that is through democratic representation. So, uh, you know, those who do not listen to the expressed will of the people, whether on the social media or at the ballot box, eventually find themselves out of power by, for instance, exposing corruption, exposing wrongdoing to make us better able as citizens to hold our democratically elected elected representatives to account? Well, I mean, we can hope and do our duty and actually hold people accountable. When we notice something is not being done, we can voice our concerns through the the legitimate means. Um, any final comments or thoughts before we close? I, my final thoughts, I thoroughly enjoyed that. And it was a really good opportunity to think quite seriously about who we are as people. You know, what do we want as people? And... Like, yeah, humanity developed the internet. So now what can it continue to deliver, you know, back to us? So, you know, it's been really, really fascinating. So I think my my closing thought is that all of us, maybe it is our civic duty for all of us in society to have these discussions, to think carefully about the information networks and about our the way that we're represented and the way that our rights are um, determined and protected. Uh, so conversations like this are important because if we don't have them, it might be that corporations or states will just do their own things and not necessarily in our interest. So what we're talking about today matters. Absolutely. Uh, this was fascinating and you brought up some very interesting points and food for thought. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.